Part Three of Century of the Sky by Evelyn E. Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Century of the Sky, Part Three. When Clary got back to Katund, Imbelsyra and her mother gave a little welcome home party for him. Nothing elaborate, the widow said. Just a few neighbors and friends, some simple refreshments. The tiny residential dome was packed with people. The refreshments, Clary thought, as he munched industriously, were magnificent. But then he'd been forced to live on earth food for a weekend, so he was no judge. After they'd finished eating, the young people folded the furniture, and while one of the boys played upon a curious instrument that was string and percussion and brass all at once, the others danced. Clary made no attempt to participate. In his early youth he'd flopped at the earth-hops, and the Damorlanti had a distinctly more Dionysian culture than his home-world. He stood and watched them leaping and twirling. When they dropped, temporarily exhausted, he made his way over to the musician, whom he recognized as one of Peake's numerous grandsons. This one was Rini, he thought. "'Is that difficult to learn?' he asked, touching the instrument. "'The Eulerin is extremely difficult.' the boy said importantly. It takes years and years of practice. And you've got to have the touch to begin with. Not many do. All our family have the touch, my brother Eirik most of all. He's in Barshwat, studying to be a famous musician." Clary looked at the Eulerin with unmistakable wistfulness. "'Care to try it?' the boy asked. "'But mind, you have to pay for any bladders you burst.' I shall be very careful," Clary said, taking the instrument reverently in his hands. He had never touched a musical instrument before. An earth instrument would have been no less unfamiliar, no more wonderful. Gently he began to pluck and bang and blow, in imitation of the way the boy had done, and though the sounds that came out didn't have the same smoothness, still they didn't fall harshly on his ears. The others stopped talking and listened. It would have been difficult for them to do otherwise, as he was unable to find the muting device. "'Sounds like the death-wail of a Hicks,' Pick sibilated. But he added grudgingly, "'Foreigner or not, I have to say this for him. He's got the touch.' "'Yes, he's got the touch,' others agreed. "'You can always tell.' Rini smiled at Clary. "'I believe you do. I'll teach you to play if you like.' I would, very much." Clary was about to offer to pay for the lessons. Then he remembered that, though this would have been the right thing on earth, it would be wrong on De Morlin. "'If it is not too much trouble,' he finished. "'It's the kind of trouble I like.' The boy twisted his nose at Clary. "'Sometime you can hide the reserved books for me.' After the guests had gone, Clary insisted on helping the women with the putting away. "'Well, as long as Ambelsira has a pair of brawny arms to help her,' the widow yawned, "'I might as well be getting along to my pallet. I seem to get more and more tired these days. Old age, I expect. One day I'll be so tired I'll never wake up, and Ambelsira will be alone, and what'll she do, poor thing?' Who can live on a librarian salary? Now on two librarian salaries. Mother, Ambelsira interrupted furiously, 
You go to bed." She did, hurriedly. "'Don't worry, Imbolsira,' Clary said. She will be weaving away for decades yet. Everybody says she's the best weaver in the district," he added, to change the subject. "'Yes,' Imbolsira said, as they gathered all the oddments the guests had left. She's been offered a lot of money to go to work in Zrig, but she won't leave Katund. She was born here, and so were her parents." "'I do not blame her for wanting to stay,' he said. "'It's a very homelike place.' She sighed. "'To us it is, but I don't suppose someone who's city-born and bred would feel the same way. I know you won't let yourself stay buried here forever, and what will I—what will mother and I ever do without you?' "'It is very kind of you to say so,' he replied. "'I am honored. The girl—she was still young enough to be called a girl, though no longer in her first youth—looked up at him. Blue eyes could be pleasing in their way. "'Why are you always so stiff, so cold?' "'I am not cold,' he said honestly. "'I am—afraid.' "'There is nothing to be afraid of. You're safe among friends, no matter what you may have done back where you came from.' "'But I have done nothing back there,' he said. "'Nothing at all. Perhaps that is the trouble with me.' She looked up at him and then away. "'Then isn't it about time you started to do something?' The next time he went to Barshwat he took a lot of luggage with him, because, besides the artifacts and the flora and fauna, he brought cold pastries for the colonel. The colonel ate one in silence, then said, "'Try to get the recipe.' "'By the way,' said Clary, the XT boys made a few mistakes. The bug isn't an insect, it's a bird. And the lule isn't a bird, it's a flower. And the paparoon isn't a flower, it's an insect." "'Oh, well, I guess they'll be able to straighten that out,' the colonel said, licking crumbs from his thick fingers. "'We do our jobs, and they do theirs.' He reached for another pastry. "'Take good care of the bug,' Clary said. He likes his morning seed mixed with milk, his evening seed with wine. His name is Murty. He's very tame and affectionate. I said I was bringing him to my aunt. He paused. You are going to take him back alive, aren't you? You get so much more information that way. Wouldn't dream of hurting a hair—a feather—no, it's a hair, isn't it—of the little fellow's head. Clary looked out of the window at the purple night sky. Then he turned back to the colonel. "'I've been taking music lessons,' he said defiantly. "'Fine. Every man should have a hobby. But I've no music license.' "'Come now, Clary. You still don't seem to realize you're on Demorlin, not Earth. Not a blooded intelligence man yet. There aren't any guilds on Demorlin, so enjoy yourself.' Speaking of that, did you find out about, uh, Earthmen and—? Yes, I'd meant to drop you a note, but it seemed rather odd information for your aunt to be giving you. It's absolutely all right, old chap. Go ahead. Have your bit of fun. Clary was unreasonably annoyed. 
I wasn't thinking of what you're thinking. I mean, well, Katund is a village, and the native morality is very strict in these matters. Afraid I don't quite follow you. Clary bit his finger. Well, he finally admitted, the truth of the matter is, I'd like to get married. The colonel was extremely surprised. A legal arrangement! Is it absolutely necessary? How about the females that the innkeeper's so anxious to have you, ah, uh, meet? Clary didn't know how to explain. Their standards of cleanliness, he began and stopped. Then he started again. I suppose I'd like a permanent companion. I don't suppose there's any real reason why you shouldn't enter into a legal liaison while you're here, said the colonel. After all, it isn't as if the two races could interbreed. That could be decidedly awkward. Who's the lucky little lady? My landlady's daughter, Clary said. Your boss, eh? Flying high, aren't you, old chap? His massive hand descended on Clary's shoulder. Then he grew serious. Can she cook like her mother? Even better. My boy, the colonel said solemnly, you have my unqualified blessing. And when I ask you to save me a piece of the wedding cake, I ask from the heart. So when Clary went back to Katund, he asked Embalsira to marry him, and she accepted. The whole village turned out for the wedding. Clary managed to take some vok-picks of the ceremonies for the XTs with a finger unit. I ought to get a handsome wedding present for this, he thought. And, to his surprise, on the wedding day, an elaborate jewel-studded toilet service did arrive from Barshwat, with the affectionate regards of his aunt, who was too ill to travel. They tie up everything, he thought but he knew it was a little more than simply remembering to pick up a loose end. The toilet set was vulgar, ostentatious, hideous, obviously selected with loving care and terrestrial taste. Everybody in Katund and a lot of people from the surrounding country came to look at it. It seemed to establish his eligibility beyond a doubt. "'Never thought Belsire would do it, and at her age, too,' Peek was heard to comment. But it looks like she really got herself a catch. What's a little weakness in the dome-top when there's money, too?" The first three years of Clary's marriage were happy ones. He and M. Belsira got on very nicely together, and since he was fond of her mother, he didn't mind her constant presence too much. Once a week he took a Euleran lesson from Rini. He practiced assiduously and made progress that he himself could see was sensational. He did wish that Rini would accept money. It would have been so much less of a nuisance than replacing the music-books the boy stole from the library, but he couldn't expect local customs to coincide with his own. The money, of course, didn't matter. He still wasn't living up to his allowance, although he was beginning to spread himself on elaborate custom-made cloaks and tunics. On earth he addressed soberly, according to his status but here he felt entitled to cut a dash. At the colonel's request, on his next trip to Barshwat, he brought his Euleran and taped some native melodies. "'I like them, the colonel said, nodding his head emphatically. "'Catchy, very catchy. Hope the XTs appreciate them. 
They don't usually like music if it sounds at all human." And catching the look on Clary's face, "'Well, you know what I mean. To them, if a tune can be hummed, it isn't authentic.' News of Clary's skill on the Ullerin spread through the countryside. When he played in the temple concerts, people sometimes came from as far away as Zrig to hear him. Clary was a little disturbed about this, because he didn't subscribe to the local faith. But the high priest said, "'My son, music knows no religious boundaries. Besides, when you play, we always get three times as much in the collection nets.'" At the time, Clary got word from Barshwat that General Spano and the staff-ship were expected shortly. He had risen to the post of chief librarian. Imbolsira had retired to keep dome and wait for the young ones who would, of course, never come. Clary had hired a hickshead of an assistant from Zrig to assist him. He saw now why the village had originally been grateful to get even a foreigner of doubtful background for the job. "'I'm going to have to stay at least a week with Aunt Askush this time,' he told his wife. "'Legal matters. I think she's drawing up a will or some such,' he added, hoping that this would keep Embolsira happy and convinced. Maybe it worked too well. "'But why can't I come with you? I've always wanted so much to meet her. I keep telling you her illness is a disfiguring one. She won't meet strangers. And don't say you're not a stranger. You'd understand, but she's the one who wouldn't. Please, don't nag me, Belser." "'Sometimes I think you're a stranger, Balt,' Embolsira declared emotionally. "'Yes, dear, I'm a stranger, anything you say, but let me get packed.' He started folding a robe crookedly, hoping it would distract her into taking over the job but she leaned against the lintel, staring at him. "'Balt, sometimes I wonder if you really have an aunt.' The only thing he allowed himself to do was put down the robe he was holding. "'Do you think I send expensive toilet seats to myself? You must think Pick's right. I'm just plain crazy.' "'Pick doesn't think you're crazy any more. He and the other old ones say you have a woman in Barshwat but I don't believe that." "'Maybe I do, Imbolsira. A man's a man, even if he is a librarian. I know it isn't true. I think it's something else entirely. You're so strange sometimes, Balt. How could somebody who comes only from the other side of the same world be so strange?' He forced a grin. Suddenly you've become very cosmic. What do you know of our—of the world? It's a big place. And nobody else in Catan seems to be so impressed by my strangeness. They think a foreigner's entitled to his queer ways. Nobody in Catan knows you as well as I do. And I've seen foreigners before. They're not different in the way you are." She looked intently at him. It's not a shameful kind of strangeness just a strange kind of strangeness. Fascinating in its way. I don't want you to think I just married the first stranger who came along. I'm sure you had many offers, dear. Come, help me fold this cloak, or I'll never make the bus." "'You know what I'm reminded of,' she said, coming forward and taking the cloak. 
of the old tale about the lovely village maiden who marries the handsome stranger and promises she'll never look into his eyes, and then one day she forgets and looks into his eyes and sees. What does she see? The worst thing of all, the greatest horror. She sees nothing. She sees emptiness. He laughed. The moral's clear. She shouldn't have looked into his eyes. But how can you help looking into the eyes of the man you love? Maybe that's the moral, that it was an impossible task he set her. In those tales it's always the man's fault, isn't it? Not much doubt who made them up. Now, Belser, please, I've got to finish packing. It'll be just my luck to have today be the day the Busta Zrigs on time. A couple of weeks ago I was in Zrig shopping, and I saw an Earthman," she said, folding his cloak into the kit. The way he walked, the way he moved, reminded me a little of you. It was a long moment before he could speak. Do I look to you like a dark-faced, dark-haired, brown-eyed—I didn't say you were an Earthman. But if Earthmen can travel through the sky, they might be able to do other things, too maybe even change the way a man looks." He snapped the kit-fastener. "'If you really believe that, you should be careful. Creatures as clever as that might be able to pluck your words from my brain.' "'What if they did? I'm not ashamed. Or afraid, either.' He reached out and patted her arm. Maybe she wasn't afraid, but he was. For her and for the people of de Morlan. If there was a deep probe on the staff-ship, if only something could happen to him so he could never reach Barshwat, Spano wouldn't know. He might guess, but he wouldn't know. He'd have to start all over again, and maybe things would turn out better next time. General Spano and his secretary were waiting in Blinn's office. Clary stretched out his foot in greeting, then recollected himself and reached out his hand. "'You see, sir,' he said with a too hearty laugh, "'I'm really living my part.' Spano beamed. "'De Morland certainly seems to agree with you, my boy. You look positively blooming. Doesn't he, Han?' She nodded grave agreement. The general sniffed. "'What's that you two are smoking?' Marrick leaves, Clary said. A native product. Care to try one? He extended his pouch to Spano. Don't mind if I do, the general said, taking a roll. Which part do you light? And why don't you offer one to Secretary Vollert? Oh, sorry, I didn't think of it. The women here don't use it. Care to try one, Secretary? As she took a roll, she looked at him searchingly. She was still beautiful in an Amazonian way, but he preferred Embelsira's way. He could never imagine Han Vollard warm and tender. "'Well, Clary,' Spano said, "'you seem to be doing a splendid job. I've been absolutely enthralled by your reports.' He settled himself behind Blinn's desk. "'Pity the information's top secret. It could make a fortune on the tridies. Clary bowed. And those music tapes you sent back created quite a stir. We've brought along some superior equipment. 
The rig here is good enough for routine work, but we need better fidelity for this. And it would be appreciated if the Colonel didn't beat time with his foot while you played. No offense, Blen. He turned back to Clary. Do you think you can pick up some of those, what do you call 'ems, eulerines for us too, or is there a taboo of some kind? Not eulerines, Clary corrected. Eulerin. And you can walk up to any marketplace and get as many as you like, providing you have the cash, of course. I told you the job had musical overtones. I'll bet that makes up for some of the discomforts and privations. It's not too uncomfortable. There speaks a true patriot, Spano approved. Han measured Clary with her eyes. You're quiet, secretary, he said nervously. You used to talk a lot more. Blynn stared at him. She smiled. You're the one who has things to tell now, Clary. And show, the general said, almost licking his lips. Every one of your tapes made my mouth fairly water. I trust you brought an ample and varied supply of those delicacies." Clary's smile was unforced this time. I got your message and brought along a large hamperful, but it'll be hard to make the people back home keep thinking my aunt's an invalid if she eats like a team of hacks. My wife bakes some pastries, which I especially recommend to your attention. I think we ought to get business over before we start on refreshments," Han suggested. Yes, Spano agreed reluctantly. I suppose you had better be deep-probed first, Clary. Not even one taste beforehand, Han? Well, I suppose not. Clary tensed. You've got a probe on the ship? he asked, as if the possibility had never occurred to him. That's right, Han Vollard said. It's an up-to-date model. The whole thing'll take you less than an hour, and we'll have the information collated by morning. I... I would prefer not to be deep-probed. You never can tell. It might upset all the conditioning I've received here. It... Let us worry about that, Clary," she said. He didn't sleep that night. He sat looking out of the window, knowing there was nothing he could do. Embelsira was in danger. Her people were in danger, and he couldn't lift a finger to save them. When he came down to breakfast, he saw that the reports had been collated and read. "'So, your wife suspects, does she?' the general asked. "'Shrewd little creature. You must have picked one of the more intelligent ones.' Clary struggled on the pin. "'Wives often have strange fancies about their husbands. You mustn't take it too seriously.' How often have you been married, Clary? Han asked. Or even linked in liaison? How many married people did you know well back on earth? There was no need to answer. She knew all the answers. I think Clary did a rattling good job, Blint said stoutly. It wasn't his fault that she suspects. Of course not, the general agreed. Feminine intuition isn't restricted to human females. In fact, in some female ilfs it's even stronger than in humans. The precognitive faculties in the Grua, for example." "'What are you going to do?' Clary interrupted bluntly. Han Vollard answered him. "'Nothing yet. You've got us a lot of information, but it's not enough. 
You'll have to keep on as you are for another three years or so." It was all Clary could do to keep from trembling visibly with relief. "'It doesn't even matter too much that one of the natives suspects,' Anne went on, as long as she doesn't definitely know. "'She doesn't,' Clary said. "'And she won't. And she won't tell anybody. She'd be afraid for me.' But he wasn't all that sure. The Demorlanti didn't hate Earthmen, and they didn't fear them, and so Embolsira wouldn't think it was a shameful thing to be. He was glad he'd already been deep-probed. At least this thought would be safe for three years or so. At any rate, they don't seem antagonistic toward Earthmen, the general said, almost as if he'd read part of Clary's mind. I think that's nice. Handvollard looked at him. It's not their attitude toward us that matters. They couldn't do anything if they tried. It's what they are that matters, what they will be that matters even more. I take back what I said before, Clary flared. You talk too damn much. There was a chilling silence. Nerves, said Blynn nervously. Every agent lets go when he's back among his own kind. Nothing but release of tension. Several days later the staff-ship was ready to go back to Earth. "'Don't forget to tell your wife how much I enjoyed the pies,' Spano said. "'Then—oh, I was forgetting. You could hardly do that. But do see if you can work out something with the dehydrofreeze. I'd hate to have to wait three years before tasting them again. You can keep your marac rolls, though. I'll take my smokesticks. Try not to get any more involved, Clary," Han Vollard said as they stood outside the airlock. Maybe you ought to move on, to a city perhaps, another country. When I want your advice, I'll ask for it," he snapped. After they'd gone, Blynn turned on him. Man, you must be out of your mind talking to Secretary Vollard like that. Why does she have to keep meddling? It's none of her business. None of her business? Secretary of the Space Service, and you say it's none of her business? Clary blinked. I thought she was Spano's secretary. Blynn laughed until the tears dampened his dark cheeks. Spano's only head of intelligence. She's his mistress. Of course. Mistress. Feminine of master. I should have realized that before. Then Clary laughed, too. I'm a real all-round alien. I can't even understand my own language. On the way back home he couldn't help thinking that if Han Vollard might be right. It could be the best thing for him to disappear now, the best thing for himself, the best thing for Embelsira. He could pretend to desert her. Better yet, Blynn could fake some kind of accident, so her feelings wouldn't be hurt. A pension of some kind would be arranged. She could marry again, have the children she wanted so much. If he waited the full ten years, she might never be able to have them. He had no idea at what age demorlant females ceased to be fertile. But she wasn't just a demorlant female. She was his wife. He didn't want to leave her. Maybe he never would have to. Hadn't Spano said that when his term was over he could pick his planet? He would pick Demorlin.
End of part three.